Hi folks, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. The other partner is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. She's with me today. You're listening to Elder Law Issues. Elizabeth, I want to talk about something that comes up from time to time in in uh, in the population of older clients that we see and occasionally involves us in younger clients as well, and that is the civil commitment process. Um, to be very clear, we are Arizona lawyers. We really only know about Arizona law. This is an area in which there is a lot of state law variation, variability. So be very careful if you're not in Arizona trying to generalize from what we, we have to talk to you about. But uh, this comes up in my mind, Elizabeth, because we occasionally get a call, and we got one in the last couple of weeks from a family member who says, more or less, my son or daughter is going through the civil commitment process. They have a hearing next Tuesday at 9 o'clock. I need you to represent me at that hearing. What's the correct answer for that, Elizabeth? Well, Robert, we may not be able to provide you with representation, first of all, because you're not going to be a party, most likely, to the hearing. The whole process when we talk about mental health proceedings um, falls under Title 36, which is a different process than um, guardianship proceedings under Title 14. So the idea of the state's involvement when we talk about civil commitment proceedings, that really governs the process. And so even a concerned family member who says, I want you to represent me in this case where you know there's going to be a hearing at the mental health court, well, you're probably not going to have any way uh, to affect much change in that as far as your status as a party because you're probably not going to be the party who has um, started the petition. And you might be a witness, but no more than a witness. And you need an attorney to counsel you in how to how to be a witness. If you're a witness, the question is going to be, what did you observe about your son or daughter? What did they shout at you uh, during their more, most recent break uh, and uh, and were they threatening to you? That's really the core question in most civil commitment proceedings is, is the patient either dangerous to themselves if they threaten suicide or taken actions that appear to be dangerous or are they dangerous to others if they threaten family members or public officials or uh, police officers or, or, or caseworkers at the mental health community? It, it's not um, where should they live. It's not is their family supportive. It's not do they owe people money. It's not um, do they need a guardian or conservator. It's really primarily are they dangerous and mentally ill and refusing treatment. Those are the three central questions in most commitment proceedings. There is another category that can get somebody committed civilly, and that are actually two more categories. That is if they are gravely disabled or persistently and acutely disabled. But again, family members are no more than witnesses in those proceedings. And Robert, when we talk about being um, able to file a petition, that process is very different when you look at the Title 36, the civil commitment proceedings. Can you talk a little bit about the process of who files a petition and, and, and how that's normally reviewed and, and how that compares to a guardianship proceeding, for instance? Sure, and it's a radical difference. And it's rooted a little bit in history. So because I'm in my 70s, you have to hear some history. Um, but let's start with how it's different. 
if you want to become guardian or conservator for your child who has a mental health issue and is spending money badly or failing to pay their bills or failing to follow up on things, um, you can file that petition. You're going to need a, a medical opinion about their their mental or uh, uh, or psychological condition, um, but you can file the petition and be the one who brings it. We have what's usually called a gatekeeper system for the mental health community, and that means you can't file the petition. Well, that's not quite right. You can file a request for an evaluation, but you don't do that with the court. You do that with the psychiatric treatment um, system. And the gatekeeper part of this is until the medical director of a psychiatric operation is prepared to sign something saying they think that your son or daughter is mentally ill, dangerous, and refusing treatment, the whole process can't go forward. And here's the history lesson. It used to be true 60, 70 years ago that you could sign a petition, you could go pay a five, what was originally a $5 filing fee with the county and say, I think so-and-so is mentally ill and they should be picked up and locked up for mental health treatment. And the sheriff's office would act on that petition and go pick them up and commit them to originally the county hospital and then maybe the state hospital for evaluation and involuntary treatment. Those proceedings were commonly called the $5 divorce because that's how people got rid of difficult spouses. Not all the time, of course, but often enough that we changed our system in the 1970s to this gatekeeper approach that nobody can initiate a proceeding except by asking the mental health professionals to initiate it for them. So a concerned citizen, whether it's um, somebody who's related to the person who may be in need of medical care or not, a concerned citizen can reach out and say that they, they think somebody may be a danger to herself or others, but the actual process itself, in order to proceed and, and get in front of a judge, the medical director needs to be the, the party to really make the assessment, not the not the concerned citizen. That's right, and that sets a series of events in, in motion that that happens very quickly. So between the medical director saying, I think there's enough here to go forward, and the day that there's a, a hearing on whether or not the patient will be committed, that whole process takes about a week, uh, and, uh, and it's very much hurry up. So that's why we so often get the call from somebody saying, uh, my son has been misbehaving or, be, or acting out or, or having some kind of a psychotic break for about the last two or three weeks. It came to a head last weekend when he got arrested at a Circle K for berating the, the clerk, and, uh, and he was taken to the jail, and, um, and now there's a hearing next Thursday. Um, that's, that's a common story that we hear pretty often. And we can help counsel people. We can explain to them how the system works. We can tell them what limitations they're going to have on their ability to, to participate. But they really seldom need a lawyer for, for advice beyond that, that phone call and maybe a little bit of direction. The other reality that people have a very hard time coping with is it's pretty high likelihood that your son or daughter or spouse or whomever is going to be released from the psychiatric treatment, inpatient psychiatric treatment, in uh, in about three or four days, no more than 10 days to two weeks 
from the time that they're first engaged in the actual treatment. So a word of explanation, when they pick them up and place them in a psychiatric facility, they don't immediately have the ability to treat. So it may take a week to get the, uh, the court order that allows them to treat. But within a few days of that court order, they'll be looking for a placement. And they will almost certainly complete their psychiatric commitment on an outpatient basis. So that's very frustrating for family members. They need to understand that going in, that the care that, the, that their son, daughter, wife, husband, mother, whomever is going to get, uh, the involuntary care is going to be pretty short. Well, Robert, I think on that note, if you don't already have a healthcare power of attorney, um, you should have one. And if you have one, you should take a look to see if it has any mental health provisions in it. Maybe on another podcast, Robert, we can talk about mental health powers of attorney and, and the effect of having those. Will do. It's a difficult scenario. It's a difficult problem to deal with. We we really wish that we could tell you there was a, an easy, happy solution that would solve the problem, but there so often isn't. And on that happy tone, we will wrap up. I'm Robert Fleming. I've been talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And, um, and we promise to be much more upbeat when we come back next week. Talk to you then.